Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Can you hear me on the phone? I do. I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not. You're breaking off quite badly. Hello, and welcome to The Lock-In, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have two. I'm having a pint today with the author Lee Child, the man who invented Jack Reacher. Lee Child isn't his real name. His real name is Jim Grant, and the creator of the American action hero actually comes from Coventry. We're in the George, a lovely old coaching inn in Borough High Street, a part of London where if you're a bloke you really need a beard, which neither of us has. We're also, as we are both born in the 1950s, too old for this part of town. Lee is having a Coca-Cola and I'm having a pint of IPA. Now, Lee, how many books do you reckon you've sold? Well, i got two answers to that, actually. The, the, uh, the, the polite answer is to say I've sold 24 one a year to my publishers. And if they manage to sell more than one copy each, then that's their achievement, not mine. And I think the total, I have no idea what it is. We, it sounds horrible to say so, but we stopped counting at about 100 million. And presumably we're now headed towards 200 million. And um, long may it continue. Do you feel different if you know that that number of people have felt it worthwhile to buy your books? I don't think so, actually. I've talked to a lot of authors about this because they tend to get a little jealous or intimidated by very high numbers like that. But really, I think almost every author is in the same situation. As soon as you hit about, say, one reader, then you know that you, one reader that's not your mother, then you have basically succeeded. And then you get two readers, and then you get 20, then you get 200, then you get 2,000. And by the time you hit about 2,000, that's more people than you could practically know you know if you took out 2,000 people to dinner to say thank you one at a time that's five and a half years so as soon as you hit those few thousand you're in the situation of you've got a big audience that you will never know and uh, people that you've never heard of are enjoying your stuff so above 2,000 it really doesn't make a practical difference and of course you can't think about the individual reader with numbers like that you've only you've got to do what you always did from from day one, 
which is just right for yourself. Whatever pleases yourself is what you got to do. Obviously, they buy your books for pleasure. Do you get a sense of what that pleasure is? Yeah, I do, because I'm very interested in that, you know, the mechanisms of why people do anything. And people buy my books, I think, for a lot of different reasons, especially the women that buy my books. And I have a lot more women than I should. Uh, Generally speaking, women buy more fiction anyway. But I think I've got more than my share. And I think it's all about the powerless who, uh, of which I think women consider themselves slightly less powerful than men, the powerless people seeing somebody, their representative, getting revenge on the bad guys. Uh, revenge is a hard word to use, though, isn't it? It is, but really... Isn't it about justice being enacted? The bad of, guy getting his desserts? Yeah. It, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's one way of looking at it, that, that it's a substitute for real life, which is extremely unsatisfactory. Uh, you know, if your car gets stolen, they're never going to get it back. If your house gets burgled, the police won't probably even come around, let alone catch the guys or get the stuff back. So real life is always about a a low-level buzz of frustration when nothing is ever resolved, there's never closure, the story never finishes. And so they love that in a book where if your car gets stolen, you bet they're going to find the guys and you're going to get it back. Uh, So they, they appreciate that. But it is also revenge, revenge on nastiness, revenge on the people that are just doing the wrong thing. So it's a mixture, yeah, justice. But justice is, a, I feel, a kind of battlerized version of it. It's the polite version. What people really love it to see is Reacher uh, walk up to somebody and kick the shit out of them or shoot them in the head. They get a tremendous amount of visceral satisfaction from that, which I feel is actually a very sophisticated response. These are not textbooks. People don't read these as textbooks for how they should live. The fact that they enjoy them... I think is is a kind of admission that they know this is this is not how we should live. We of course we should have civilization and and due process and courts and and uh, suspects' rights and all that kind of thing. People understand that to a degree, but it is frustrating. So they turn to fiction to, for that gut satisfaction of seeing things work out in the way that their their bleakest fantasies would like to see it work out. The bad guy gets nailed. Absolutely, and which generally doesn't happen in reality, and so they love to see it happen in fiction. Do they identify with Jack? Do you think? I absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's all, that's that's all there is in the book for the for the reader, I think, and it, it makes it slightly frustrating for me because what, whatever the plot is, however good the plot, however clever the reveal is, or the meat of the issue, all they want to see is is Reacher do stuff. And as long as he does stuff every year, they're happy. Richard has been to, to Britain, you know, because his backstory is that he was very peripatetic as a, a U.S. service person. And obviously, there's a big presence in Britain, and he's been there. He's been here many times. Um, and Richard would be right at home in the pub, except he would be the guy on his own in the corner watching everybody else rather than necessarily participating. And the movies... I really enjoyed doing them. Uh, I, Hollywood people are batshit crazy, but for the best of reasons, all they want to do is put on a good show. Uh, they try as best as they can, and they work incredibly hard. Tom Cruise as an individual was a delightful guy. We got on really well. He was a lot of fun to be with. 
Uh, of course, he wasn't physically suitable for to play Reacher. No, because Reacher's a big bloke. Exactly. It, it didn't work at all. The readers rejected it and hated it. So by some weird ESP, my lawyer had put into the contract that after two movies, I got a veto over, the, would there be any more? So I said no, and we're doing, uh, we're taking it to streaming television. And uh, right, we're doing it right now, in fact, casting right now. I'll have to go to LA soon and look over who they're thinking about. And uh, believe me, we're gonna get the biggest guy you've ever seen, um, just to, so we don't have the repeat of the Tom Cruise criticism. You mean, when you say the biggest star, you mean the tallest? Yes, I mean, absolutely. I would prefer an unknown one. I really, and television, I think, gives you that liberty. Movies financing means you've got to have an A-list star. Television is way less critical about that. So I would love an unknown, uh, exactly the right look and size. Uh, like movies used to be at the end of the 50s, for instance, when Sean Connery became James Bond, a completely unknown guy, uh, became iconic. And I would like to do the same thing again. And you can get away with that with television because it's just not so star-driven. Keep your eye out for a Edinburgh Milkman. <laughs> yeah. I once saw, years ago, I saw a guy in a Nissan pickup truck commercial that would have been perfect for Reacher. Uh, but I've no idea who he was. I, a woman I met told me that uh, she'd been moving house and the piano movers came and this one gigantic silent guy was helping with the, the, uh, the piano and at the end of it she gave him a cup of coffee and he said, thank you, ma'am. And that was Reacher, you know, we're going to find him. <laughs> I'm sort of baffled as to where you get. I've tried to write fiction, I've failed. I was hopeless. But I'm quite surprised as to where you get the idea from. Do you sit down, when you sit down to write your next novel, do you know what's going to happen in it? No, I don't. And that is the... That's the attraction for me, and I think it then translates into the attraction for the reader, because literally I sit down every, I, I was going to say every morning as a ha convention, but actually for me it's in the afternoon. I sit down every day, and I have that same sense of excitement that I hope the reader's going to have. What is going to happen next? I have no idea. And I think that keeps it alive and keeps it fresh. And whatever the story is about, just emerges and in general I try and keep them as low-key as possible I think the big danger with thrillers is that you know if your first book is about saving the world from the uh, nuclear bomb then what is your second book going to be about saving it from two nuclear bombs and so on so I try and keep keep the issues fairly low-key fairly quotidian um, sometimes occasionally reality intrudes from the news like one i did recently is about the opiate crisis for instance i've uh, read that one the new one is about one of the fundamental issues is is health care in america which is um, you know ripped from the headlines in in a sense but i i usually don't do that because i i think that um it it needs to be personal. It needs to be something fairly low-key involving characters rather than big issues. But you don't lie awake at night worrying about what a particular character is going to do. No. I mean, to be honest, I find that all a little bit sort of BA English literature type of stuff. You know, people say the character should go on a journey, there should be an arc, 
character should learn something and so on. The character should want something on every page. And actually, these characters don't exist. They're made up. There's only two real people in this transaction. One is the writer and one is the reader. It's the reader that wants something on every page, and normally they get it. And you see it as your job to give it to them? Yeah, I see. My job is purely to keep them entertained for a day or three days or however long it takes them to read the book. Uh, and that is the real, the only responsibility I feel. It's not the money. I mean, books are very cheap. I mean, way too cheap, uh, really. Uh, so I don't worry if somebody wastes their money. What I, I worry about is somebody wastes their time. If they spend three days on something that they don't find satisfactory, they can never get those three days back. So that is, is my responsibility, to give them a good time. Has it made you spectacularly rich? Compared with what I ever thought I would be, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm old enough to remember when a million dollars was a lot of money. And, uh, you know, now people count their money in billions, and I'm certainly nowhere near that. But, yeah, compared with... With my, my origins in Birmingham, absolutely. I am I'm spectacularly rich and uh, very happy about it. But you don't live here. I live here some of the time. I've got a disgusting number of homes. I've got a, I've got a house in the south of France. I've got a farm in Sussex where I stay when I'm in England. I've got an apartment in New York City. I've got a ranch in Wyoming, and I just bought a house in Colorado. What's the point of having all those houses? Because if you can't really be sure where you want to be, you should have a large portfolio to choose from. Do you stay in them all? Yeah. Uh, France, usually the least, uh, but I, I circulate amongst the others on a regular basis. But what's the point? Well, there's various points. New York is New York. I just love that city. Um, Wyoming is the complete antithesis, um, the absolute opposite of New York. Wyoming as a state is larger than the United Kingdom, and it has the population of Leicester, thinly spread around. It's more interesting than Leicester. Well, it, yeah, I mean, it has, definitely has a worse winter than Leicester. And uh, I just love that spectacular isolation, and I love to be able to move around between different places. Colorado is a uh, has legal weed, which is always an advantage. So there's do always you smoke a lot of dope. I do. I've been I've been uh, April 1969, so I just passed my 50th anniversary of my first joint, and um, I'm the poster boy for it. It hasn't done me any harm. You're in favour of legalisation, of course. I am in favour, not only because it's an enjoyable thing that's probably better for us than alcohol and so on, but just removes a lot of problems if it is. We talked about op opiates a minute ago, and the states that have legalized weed have got far less of an opiate addiction problem because there's alternatives to it. Yeah. But what do you say to the... I'm, I'm always bothered about this legalization thing, although it makes a great deal of sense. But what do you say to the argument that there's something wrong about a state conniving at the addiction of its citizens. And if you legal, because if you legalize marijuana, why not legalize every drug? Well, that's a good point. Uh, but we, we, we have people addicted to gambling, which obviously the government benefits from a lot. We have people addicted to alcohol and so on. All of those are legal. I think the real thing is to look at why they were made illegal. Was there a good reason for it? And in terms of marijuana, not really. Uh, yeah, in the States, marijuana became illegal in 1927 and the critical speech on the senate floor is just hysterical the, the senator said if you let your daughter smoke marijuana 
She will take up with musicians or Negroes or even writers, which I thought was not a very good reason. <laughs> but you don't care about what variety of dope you smoke. Well, the, it's the free market at work. It's been very instructive to watch it. Now you Some of it, it's, it's responsible for a very large number of people admitted to mental hospitals with psychosis of one kind or another. I think if you... Uh, very strong weed if you're young. Yeah, I think that is a danger. And, uh, you know, it's like alcohol at the age of 21 to be able to legally purchase it, which you might argue physiologically is, is young, but it uh, seems like a pretty good compromise to me. I always think about it, if you can walk into a marijuana shop or a bar, which one is actually going to do you more harm? And having worked in television before I became a writer, the occupational disease in television back then was alcoholism. And that really destroyed a lot of lives in a way that I have not seen. Certainly soft drugs uh, destroy lives. Let's talk about your time in television. You worked for Granada. I did. Great company, I always thought. It was a great company. It was, I felt the apogee of, of the British system at the time. It was just fabulous in every way. And people remember the drama at, at Granada. We, when I Brideshead started, and things. Yeah, they, were doing, they did Hard Times and then Jewel in the Crown and Brideshead and all of those things, which were great. But also, they did a tremendous documentary, including World in Action. That was a great show. It was a great show. And it was really, the, in, a, in a modest British way, for instance, World in Action did an expose about British Steel that the government was down on and threatening to bankrupt the company and imprison the Bernsteins and so on. In a way, that was the British equivalent of the Pentagon Papers, and Granada stuck to its guns and rode it out. They were a brave, uh, autonomous company that, that also believed in, in the North talking to London rather than the other way around. And... I loved those years. They were, they were great years, really great achievements. What do you think went wrong? I mean, Granada was a great company, and then it just seemed suddenly to be in the hands of a bunch of barbarians. There was a very sneaky tactical move, really, in the late 80s, which was about bringing in 24-hour broadcasting, which nobody wanted. It was no good. The overnight programs were just awful. But the point of it was to bust the union, because our... Our union agreement effectively penalized night work to, to such a degree that it couldn't be done under the existing agreement, so the existing agreement had to be scrapped and renegotiated, and that was really the beginning of the, beginning of the end of it. And then, yeah, the barbarians came in, Jerry Robinson and um, Charles Allen, who uh, John Cleese, I think it was, called them the, the caterers, that was a, just an ineffable piece of snobbery, though, wasn't it? That was horrible. It was something... It really was, days. although there was a fashion at the time, I don't know if you remember it, for, I suppose, what would later be called thinking outside the box. They, they brought in people who did not have any institutional knowledge. They brought in people from the outside thinking that that was somehow a benefit, that they would be able to see a larger picture. But really, the lack of knowledge of the business was just uh, very destructive. And it really ruined the place completely. 
That was because they didn't seem to have any interest in making programs, as far as I could see. That was exactly it. And, uh, of course, there was a financial structure to ITV back then, which was historical. You know, ITV was set up in the middle 50s, and there were a couple of years of amortizing the costs, and then it was riotously profitable. And so they brought in this thing called the levy, which was essentially a cap on profits, that if you were to... You could make outrageous profits, but not obscene. And if you if you stepped beyond the cap, then the levy was like 100% tax. So that meant that they spent that excess money on people like me and on people like uh, and on making great great programs, which cost a lot of money. Why did you get the sack? Simply because they Charles Allen moved in as managing director, and he called down to the personnel department. It was then called now they call it human resources and said, send me the salary structures for everybody who works here. And I was in a particular job that was very important, very integral, uh, and we were paid more than anybody else. So he just put a red line around our slot and said, get rid of these people. So that was it? Yeah, that was it. I, I took a week's holiday in Spain with my wife and daughter, and I got back, and on third message on my answering machine was, uh, do not come back to work, you're fired. At what point did you then decide you were going to become a writer? I had sort of had it in my back pocket for a few years. I, I had, on another holiday, I'd been to Mexico and flew back through Miami and grabbed a book at the Miami airport, a John D. McDonald book called The Lonely Silver Rain with the, the series character Travis McGee. And I'd always been a huge, huge reader all my life. But something about that book and that series uh, seemed... I, I loved it as a story, obviously, on the, on the surface, but I could see beneath the skin. I could see the skeleton of it. It was almost like a blueprint. I could see what he was doing and why he was doing it. And I thought, you know what, I could do this. But, of course, I didn't because I was busy with my day job. But then when the day job disappeared... I thought, right, well, this is the time, either put up or shut up, you've got to try it. But you didn't do it as a conscious way of making money. Yeah, I did, actually. I mean, it was to replace the salary that I had. Yeah. and um, Which was enormous. Yeah, it was a real solid middle-class salary. We used to think, as long as we always earned more than the prime minister, we were doing well. <laughs> and I said to... My, I got an agent, and he said, what do, you, what, what do you need? What are your expectations? And I, I said the salary, and I said, I want to replace this. And he said, I can't get you that. The way this business works is you'll either get less or you'll get more. So I thought, well, let's try more. And happily, it worked. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well... I'm delighted it worked out for you, but of course a lot of people would say it's a cynical decision to decide that you're going to write commercial fiction. Is it though? I mean, <coughs> that's so English, Jeremy. I Is mean, it? It's uh, what are you? And I, I've, I had that. I had that opposition early on. We were supposed to starve in a garret or something like that and produce ineffably great works that would never be read, maybe rediscovered in a hundred years in some obscure university department. And I thought, actually, no, entertainment, this is a branch of entertainment. It's a branch of showbiz. Um, you aim for an audience. You have to have an audience. It's almost a Zen proposition to me. If you write a book and nobody reads it, have you actually written a book? It's a two-way street. Yeah, but the assumption is that people are like you are writing below their potential because they want to get a big audience. And that's the other it's thing. insulting, I agree. It, yeah, it makes no sense to me. So this is as good as you can make it? Th absolutely, and it's a difficult, difficult skill. <laughs> Why can't skill. you make it any better? It's a difficult skill to... It, it always strikes me as completely backward to imagine that to do something that will be consumed by a very small number of people is more difficult than it is to do something that will be consumed by a very large number of people. You know, I grew up in a car town, Birmingham, and... To make a Rolls Royce is dead easy. You're always going to find a few thousand people willing to pay whatever for anything. To make a Ford Escort is a lot harder. That's a real-world product that's got to satisfy millions of people in a reliable way it's a, and sell at a reasonable price. That is actually a far harder thing to do. What do you think of the proposition that people like you should just stick to writing thrillers? writing books that people read, and that there's something more worthwhile about so-called literary fiction. What do you think about that? I think that's wrong. I think that you've, everything that I think about starts with the reader. And I mean, I am a reader of literary fiction. I'm a reader of everything. What literary fiction do you read? Uh, you name it, I, I read it. I'm a Booker Prize judge this year. I'm reading 175. Well, that, that'll have them sniffing into their macchiatos, won't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, they're worried about it, but... Uh, you shouldn't be anywhere near the Booker Prize. Why not? Because it's for posy people who read the London Review of Books. Uh, well, hopefully we can introduce some common sense to it and actually have novels that work and have a, a narrative engine to them and so on. But I think that to, there is absolutely nothing wrong with entertaining a large number of people. And I find it easier, I would find it far easier to, do, to, to, to write a book that was going to entertain 3,000 people instead of 3 million people. And you've got to think about those readers, the sort of reader that loves, uh, let's say, Ian McEwan, Julian Barnes, whoever. Those are habitual readers. And first of all, they never expect to be 100% satisfied. They read the, the new book by Julian Barnes, let's say, and they're 85% satisfied. They're very happy about that. If they start another book that's no good at all, they'll put it down and they will then move on to the next thing on their list. But the kind of readers that I have, if they read a book they don't like, they may never read another book in their lives. Very often for people writing like me, our readers, 
are reading only that book that year, maybe two, maybe three, but they are not habitual readers and it's very easy to kill it for them. So I think our responsibility is, is greater and I think our task is harder. But this is like saying that people who go to the pantomime at Christmas are theatre goers. They're not. No, there's definitely a kind of split between, um, between serious readers and uh, very occasional readers who are just reading for... And you can see them. I mean, you can see them at the airport. You know, they've got to get there two hours early to check in and you see them stomping around and they sort of say, oh, I suppose I'd better buy a book. And it's almost like a distressed purchase. But, and they buy one and they, if they enjoy it, they'll read another one. And I think that's a good thing. How long do you give the book? Do you think it's going to survive much longer? I think actually no. I think that we're in a very very short-lived blip that may be no more than a couple of hundred years long where we actually read printed words off a page. I think that audiobooks are going to become the majority medium before very long because they always were. Not audiobooks, but oral storytelling. We don't know how long storytelling has been going on, but we can sort of guess we figure that language, syntactical language anyway, is maybe 200,000 years old. We know that music, for instance, is at least 65,000 years old because of artifacts that we found. We know that representative art is possibly 50,000 years old. Both of those things need technological intervention in terms of manufacturing a bone flute or mixing up some pigments and finding a stick to apply them with. Voices and language we already had, so storytelling, in my guess, is probably 100,000 years old. And so for 100,000 years, we've had oral storytelling. For about 150 years, people like you and me have read off the page. And I think it will quickly go back to audiobooks. Now that we have a generation that is completely accustomed to downloading stuff and wearing earbuds all the time. But the human appetite for stories remains, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. It's essential. I think it's actually what makes us human. It's an integral part of being human, that we live two separate lives in a sense. One is reality-based and one is fiction-based, and one informs the other to a certain extent. And I think, you know, what is it Terry Pratchett who said, instead of calling us um, homo sapiens, we should be called pan-narans, the storytelling ape. And I think it is absolutely essential. It will never go away. It will always find the easiest route. And I think we're, we're, we're heading back to the easiest route being listening. So we're gonna, people will be wandering around with things in their ears. Well, aren't they already? Yeah, they are. Yeah. Um, but they're not going to be reading books. No, they're not going to be reading off a page. They're going to be listening to narration. That's my private guess based on just the weight of history. What do you think about publishing now? I think they are, uh, in some ways, remarkably resilient. You know, we went through a horrendous crash in 2008, 2009, and all the publishers remained profitable. None of them went bankrupt. None of them were actually in the red. So in, in, in some ways, they are uh, smart and resilient. But sadly, I think they have maintained their position by cutting back on risk-taking a little bit, certainly cutting down on the size of the list. Certainly in the old days, and I know this for an absolute fact, you know, my American editor had me reliable number one, and that kind of entitled her, literally, more or less within the formal structure of the business, it entitled her to publish three or four pet projects. And, and that has gone now. 
the taking a risk on, on unlikely things has gone. Um, allegedly, we were going to see self-publishing replace that space, but it really hasn't. Self-publishing hasn't worked in the way that it should have done. And so I think publishers will, the evidence is they are concentrating on brands, big brands, and rather than growing their own, which is very difficult to do now and very risky, they are just poaching each other's, like Premier League football clubs. You know, occasionally somebody comes through from the academy, but mostly they buy established stars. Do you read your own books on audiobooks? I do not. It's, uh, it is a, uh, it's a unique skill to be able to do that. Um, and, you know, we talked about Granada and, I, and World in Action, and I had a good friend, actually the same guy that used to do the um, shouting out the names and the colleges on University Challenge. His name was Jim Pope. Jim Pope, yes. Yeah. I, I worked with him. Yeah, yeah there while. you go. Yeah. And he, he used to do the voiceover on World in Action. And World in Action, of course, the journalists were all total drama queens, and so the thing was never ready before the very last <laughs> second. <laughs> And so he would have to go in there, 26 minutes and five seconds that show ran. And he would have to go in there and read the script. And of course it was likely to be involving all kinds of funny foreign names or concepts or whatever. And he could do it in one take. He would do 26 minutes of narration in one take. And that is a very unusual skill. If I were to read my own books, first of all, my accent is wrong. And second, I could probably manage 20 or 30 seconds without a stumble, but I would be constantly stopping and starting, and that is inefficient in, in an industrial sense. And so I have great admiration for narrators. It is almost a freaky talent to be able to just read and read and read for 20 or 30 minutes at a time without making a mistake. But you can talk. I can talk, yeah, and that's... Um, I, that's a great barbell, actually. Can you talk for a whole minute uh, at normal speed? And everybody says, yeah, of course. Can you talk for a whole minute at normal speed without using a word containing the letter A? And almost everybody says no. And all you've got to do is go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Until you get to 101, there's no A's in that. Crikey, that's right. There you go. You learn something every day. What a very useful thing to have. <laughs> I'm glad we got I know a lot of useful chat. stuff. For instance, on the Super Bowl about 15 or so years ago, you know, in the halftime of the Super Bowl show, they unveil the big new TV commercials. One of them was for Pepsi, and the pitch woman was Britney Spears. And... Uh, an immutable truth is that there is only one anagram in English of Pepsi-Cola, which is Episcopal, while simultaneously there is only one anagram of Britney Spears, which is Presbyterians. Really, how fascinating. What an interesting life you must have led to work that out. Indeed. I'm, the, I'm an uber nerd, and I think that's people, Reacher is too, and people like that about Reacher. He, he, he's interested in weird stuff, and uh, he's a great autodidact, isn't he? Total, yeah, and he, he's, not, he's not shy about, um, about saying it. For instance, the, the, the word for, F-O-U-R, is the only, uh, the only word, number word, that has exactly the same number of letters as the number. He loves stuff like that. Really? 
Well, here's one for you. This, this isn't mine. This is off university challenge. So if the numbers 1 to 10 are written out as words and the order of the letters is reversed, which one comes first alphabetically? <laughs> that, is, uh, that is a great... That is a very good question. It's right? good, you see, but we're old codgers. Yeah. But we're, we, we've got to think about we'd it. we think it through, yeah. The, the, the moment I'd asked that question on University Challenge, somebody buzzed in and said three. Right. Because that's what you can do when you're 21 or something. Yeah, or possibly you just you have a talent for just seeing it. Yeah, for seeing yeah. it, maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, here we are talking about television again. Uh, are you optimistic about the future of television? Uh, I think we're going to see a radical change, and it's all connected to basically broadband internet. Uh, and and uh, looking at it from the American perspective, America has uh, very fast internet on the coasts and in Chicago, for instance, and not elsewhere. And as soon as we get fast internet everywhere, then really network television will disappear because there will be no need for uh, live, real-time broadcast, or at least it will have no appeal. Everybody will be streaming and, and choosing on-demand stuff. So I think it's entirely dependent on internet speed. And as soon as universal fast internet comes in, I think network television dies, and a lot of it die, A lot of other things die with it. The so-called national conversation yes, somehow broadcasting dies. Broadcasting is, is part of the power of that isn't it it is broadcasting in a, in a sense uh, brings but us together bring uh, feeds things real time and if that disappears then we get it will change radically because we're going to get instead of three channels or five channels or ten or whatever we, you're going to get a million tiny fragmented specialist uh, areas the other thing is that the broadcasters don't seem to me to have sufficiently taken on board the fact that people no longer want to watch things when they decide they should watch them. They want to watch things in their own time. That's absolutely right. And on Same a sort of book. on a fifty year cycle really, you remember the Foresight saga on BBC Two, which was really the first of those shows where the whole nation sat down together. Restaurants were empty, pubs were empty and so on. Because it was at the broadcaster's dictat what time it was on. Now of course it might be just as popular a show, just as good a show but people would watch it whenever they wanted to. They would binge watch it in the middle of the night or whatever. So yeah, that, the, the national unity of broadcasting, I think, is in severe peril, simply from technology. Do you worry about the BBC? Totally. Uh, and, what and, do you worry about? Well, living overseas, you look at Britain in a different way than living in it. And the BBC is Britain, really, when you look at it from overseas. It's, it's the representative of Britain. It's a projection of Britain's image and soft power. It is incredibly influential. And I think to have it under attack from within is uh, ridiculous and suicidal and extremely damaging. It is its own worst enemy in many ways, though, isn't it? It was cowardly back under the, in, the, in the days of the first attacks in the, in the late 80s and early 90s. They buckled under, and they should not have done. They should have said, no, we're the BBC. We're going to do this the way we do it. And it would have been a rough ride, but I think if they'd established that at the beginning, they'd be a lot better off. So, yeah, they're their own worst enemies. They react to everything. They're never proactive. Do you reckon it'll still exist in, say, 30 years' time? 
very unlikely because I think the funding model is under such attack. And of course, as soon as the funding model, you know, if you go to the Gary Lineker model of pay if you want to, then it's it's dead overnight. So yeah, I think it's in severe peril, and I I think it's a real shame. And I, it's already incredibly diminished. You know, my mother, who grew up in Otley, Yorkshire, uh, the first classical music she ever heard was the BBC Symphony at Leeds Town Hall. You know, the BBC ran five symphony orchestras. It had a technical department. I love music reproduction. Hi-Fi was dozens and dozens of great loudspeakers in the world were created by the BBC. It was not just about television and radio. It was a huge organization. And a lot of that has been chipped away and gone. And presumably more and more will be too. And I think it's a great shame. You talk fondly about Otley. Do you think, you think of yourself as English, British, American? What do you think of yourself as these days? I, I'd like to think, I'm, I'm not a US citizen. I've not taken out US citizenship and I don't want to. I, I, I prefer not to be a citizen of where I live. I prefer to be an outsider and uh, uh, in, in contrast to what Mrs. May said, I, I think of myself as a citizen of the world. What does that mean though? It means I owe, I owe no particular allegiance to anywhere but can enjoy the best bits of everywhere. It's a rich man's prerogative, though, isn't it? Yeah, it, it helps to be rich, but if plenty of people can travel and work, and uh, the world is full of British people working elsewhere and uh, enjoying it. And do you think, how much longer do you think you can carry on doing what you're doing? Not very much longer. I mean, I've just turned 65, and uh, for me that was, uh, as we said, was... Uh, it's a big deal. You know, for a person of my generation, 65 is like a milestone. And um, in the back of my brain, it sort of sa it said to me, time to quit, you know, time to do, take it easy, time to retire. I remember when I started at primary school, my grandfathers were both retiring, and I didn't really understand what that meant, and I asked them, and they said, well, we don't have to do any work anymore. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty good. But would you be able to do it, not to do any work? Would you be able physically never to write another work? Yeah, I would, because I would spend that time reading, uh, which is actually what I prefer to do. The only thing I dislike about being a writer is how much time it takes away from reading, and also how cautious you've got to be. Not so much lately, but in the early days, I was uh, aware that whatever I was reading might leak through. I remember reading um, Schindler's List by... Thomas Keneally, when I was writing my first book, and I found Keneally-type phrases leaking through. So I was a bit nervous about reading fiction while writing. Um, I've sort of got over that, but it still takes a lot of time away from reading, and that's what I, I like best. If that's what you're going to spend your time doing, how much worry will you have about death? Or how much, maybe you worry about it now, I don't know. I think about it a lot, all the time. Um, I think that... It's a peculiar thing. I mean, if you look back over what we know of history and culture all around the world through the centuries, we have disagreed on practically everything. Is the world round? Is it flat? Is, is it this? Is it that? The only thing that we have always known for certain is that we will die. It's the most common knowledge in all of history. And so it's very hard not to think about it because... I don't know how you feel or when it might have happened to you, but at some point, when you're young, you are constantly looking forward. You're thinking, yes. what comes next? What comes next? 
And uh, at some point you realize, wait a minute, actually most of that is behind me now. There are more leaves on the ground than still on the tree. And that hits you at some point. And then I think, yeah, you, you, you look ahead and you say, all right, I'm, I'm on the downslope now. I'm in the waiting room. But where you're really stuffed is when you say, I should have done that. Yeah. You, you've had it then. It's a horrendous cliche to say it. You don't regret what you have done. You, you regret what you didn't do. So I've tried to do everything I can possibly think of. You're a happy man. Ah, uh, uh, conventionally, I suppose. Personally, yeah, but I find it difficult to be a thinking person in this modern world and be happy. I just don't think it's a, a rational response. Well, you're off your head most of the time, presumably. <laughs> as much as possible, yeah. Michelle Obama famously said, when they go low, we go high. I adapted it. When they go low, I get high. <laughs> But you're, you're not an, an unhappy person. I'm not. I think existentially, yes, you, I am an unhappy person. You look around at what is going on. I mean, seriously, we have, in our lifetimes, we've observed a huge hinge that happened in 1980, I, I suppose, 79 Thatcher, 80 Reagan, where we abandoned what we were used to. Uh, and it's remarkable to look back, I think, because we live day to day, we don't really look back with enough perspective. But I just read really interesting economic analysis that showed that in the 1970s in America, which was the, the decade I first knew America, in 1970s in America, income distribution was more equal than it is in Norway today. And so we abandoned that post-war consensus and, and entered this frantic neoliberal era and it has completely changed everything and it makes it very hard for a person who was comfortable with the post-war consensus to be happy now uh, i mean how good to you though it's been great to me but how how happy can we be when uh, you know greta thunberg who i i think is terrific good old greta her slogan unite behind the science if we do unite behind the science, we conclude we've had it. It's, it's, it's over, it's done, it's too late. We are heading for a certain catastrophe. In which case, why not just have a good time? Exactly, that's what I say. I think, you know, we, if we do unite behind the science, we've got to say, sorry, it's too late, there's nothing to be done, we should all party like it's 1960 and just uh, wait for the end. <laughs> Thank you very much. Do you want to stop there? Well, there you are, my very first podcast. Needless to say, that was recorded back in the happy days when Corona was just a brand of beer and meeting a stranger in a pub was yet to become a feat of daring. Since then, I've had to switch to doing these interviews on the phone from my study, which I can tell you isn't half as much fun. Bring on the sodding vaccine is all I can say. Tune in early next week if you want to hear from a real live python and in the meantime, keep washing your hands. <laughs>